This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. If you're listening to this in real time, we are well into the month of October, and in the United States, the month of October means Halloween. Uh, Halloween, as we have discussed before, is not Christy's favorite holiday. Christy, why is that? Because it's horrifying. It's about death. It's about being scared. It's about demons. I really don't understand we celebrate these <laughs> things. <laughs> and yet I've seen you dress up as Wilma Flintstone, answer a doorbell to a slew of terrifyingly dressed children, hand out candy, and enjoy every single minute of it. True. Uh, for those of you who <laughs> live in other parts of the world, that is what we do here in the United States on October 31st. And, you know, my son Ben and his wife Rachel live in a part of Memphis, which is uh, particularly serious about Halloween. So um, if we can, we'd love to go down there on Halloween and get in on the party. It's a big deal. Well, it is. And in their part of town, it's just wild. They have a neighbor whose yard literally looks like the set of a horror movie. I mean, there's graves and ghosts and witches and everything. And it spooks me. It really does. I mean, I like dressing up and seeing all the kids. That part I'm cool with. (laughs) (laughs) And yet here we are reading a classic work described as female gothic horror fiction It's the work of the celebrated author Shirley Jackson, and it's her most famous novel, The Haunting of Hill House. True. But I will say that literary horror, although terrifying, it's slightly different than Nightmare on Elm Street. Slightly? (laughs) Yeah. Or a lot. I'll tell you a little story about myself. Um, I had never watched a horror movie growing up. My mother really didn't allow them in our home. And back then, if movies were R-rated... They didn't actually let you in the theater to watch them. So I had never seen a horror movie until uh, one night I was at this overnight trip with my school. And after the hike, somebody pulled out this VHS of this movie. I'm sure it was a bootleg, but I was going to finally get to see a scary movie. People in Brazil love horror movies and Nightmare on Elm Street was all the rage and I was going to watch it. Well, how did that go for you? Uh, I made it 15 minutes in. 
15 minutes. I, I don't even know if I did that. I spent the rest of the night literally with my heads over my covers and my ears closed trying to block out everything. It scared me, and that's where the trauma comes from. <laughs> well, what I find fascinating about literary fiction is that it's scary for all kinds of different reasons. You know, not the idea of somebody jumping out and stabbing you as an unsuspecting victim. Well, exactly. It's worse. And it's not some obvious caricature of a gore with mummies walking around with hatchets that defines it. It's metaphorical. And it talks to us about the cost of seduction. It's about psychological disorders. And it's also very much about anxiety. Well, you know I love it when we get psychological. <laughs> I know. Uh, one thing I found interesting, and this is coming from the perspective uh, that we just did an entire series kind of around women's issues with a doll's house. Uh, I expected Shirley Jackson's work to be more feminist than it is. And um, also the book has all this mother-daughter drama stuff in it. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yes, it very much has everything to do with mother-daughter relationships. That motif starts on the first page and it never lets up. I started counting but quickly got tired of counting all the mother references and I tried to find an article that did the math and I couldn't, but they're endless and something that will draw your attention, especially the first time Eleanor wakes up terrified in the middle of the night yelling for her mother. Uh, but that's just one way of looking at the book, although it's a great place to start and where we're going to start as we attempt to make our way through chapter one. But in a more general sense, what Jackson was looking at is this imbalance of power that can exist really between any two people if they're in a relationship. She wants to express the seduction and betrayal of the powerless by the powerful. She expresses how one person uses the power in a relationship basically to crush another person. And unfortunately, this was a problem she knew well because it's literally her entire life story. She had this imbalance with her mother. Then she turned around and had it again with her husband. And really, in some sense, you could say she had it with the community at large of the wow. 1950s. And, of course, being written in the 1950s, uh, many women of her generation quickly related to it. In fact, in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of that uh, very famous work by Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique. That became so important in American history, but that wasn't even going to be written for another 10 years. Yeah, I think I've heard of that book. Honestly, I really don't even know much about it. What is the premise, and why does it connect in your mind to Shirley Jackson? Well, I'll be up front. I'll tell you I've never read the book. <laughs> Okay, so I'm speaking from secondhand knowledge, but what I know about it from teaching and studying history is really the impact that it had on American culture because of the power of the argument for Dan makes in the book. What is it? First of all, I'd like to point out that she's interviewing women that attended Smith College, which is a very well-to-do private school in Massachusetts. So her statistical sample was not very scientific, but... Fridan, at her 15th college reunion, took a survey from her fellow colleagues about how they felt about their lives. The basic premise of her book is that society had created a myth that women were most fulfilled if they were taking care of children, staying at home, supporting their husbands, and staying away from politics and business. And in the book, she claims that entire worldview for women is a myth, at least for many women. And uh, I will never assume to speak for women, and I certainly won't speak for all women, but... <laughs> 
probably a good idea. Yeah, but for Dan, Will. And uh, she went after the 1950s stereotypical Leave it to Beaver kind of mom that had been the um, socially accepted and promoted lifestyle. She said many women were really absolutely miserable. And she claimed that uh, society's pressure on women for women to succumb to what amounted to, in many cases, mind-numbing, non-stimulating existences was causing depression. Uh, she famously said it was a problem that has no name. And uh, whether you want to challenge her or agree with her, you have to respect uh, that her idea absolutely resonated across the United States and really around the entire world. And her book was a bestseller, and it, it sold over $3 million in her lifetime, and it's been translated into at least a dozen languages around the world. And Many textbooks credit Fredan for sparking the second wave of feminism that was a key feature of the 1960s. And uh, this kind of thing we see portrayed in movies like Forrest Gump, you know, and the character of Jenny. And this women's rights movement was not interested in voting rights. It was moving forward to the next level. It was pushing for workplace equality and birth control and abortion rights and breaking the glass ceiling in academia and business. And here... Finally, get to the point where I see it aligning with Jackson, <laughs> who came much earlier, is that this book, The Haunting of Hill House, is really a metaphorical expression of everything for Dan wanted to say about women in the 1960s. The house is haunted, so to speak. <laughs> the house was crushing oh, women. Dear. The house was making women crazy. <laughs> Well, uh, you're still a little bit of my thunder because next week uh, we were going to spend an entire episode just talking about the house itself. But I see what you mean. And you're really dead on about what Jackson is doing in her work. Uh, <laughs> pardon the pun. Dead, dead on. on. <laughs> but I want to say uh, before all men moan and groan and say, oh, my gosh, I'm turning this off. I cannot stand to listen to another one of those feminist books. This book really isn't uh, a political commentary. Uh, you can sort of kind of read it that way. Uh, the metaphor definitely does connect to the feminist movement of the 60s, and many people have discussed it just on those terms. But Jackson herself did not uh, consider herself a feminist, and there's no doubt I'm sure she advocated for many of those issues that you enumerated, but her work is art, and she would have seen it that way. It's not political propaganda like Ibsen. Uh, she would likely claim, and I know I'm presumptuous to speak for her, but I do really think uh, that she would claim that that would be a small way to understand her body of work if you just looked at it like that. She was writing the emotions, and then the reader found themselves and their world there, be it political, be it personal, be it psychological, be it however you want to see the haunted house. <laughs> I was also interested to see that Jackson, uh, very much like Elizabeth Barrett Browning, struggled fighting critics over the years. And Stanley Hyman, her husband and literary critic during their lives, uh, in the preface for a book he published of her yet unpublished work after her death, famously wrote this. For all her popularity, Shirley Jackson won surprisingly little recognition. She received no awards, no prizes, grants, or fellowships. Her name was often omitted from lists on which it clearly belonged or which it should have been on. She saw those honors go to inferior writers. But I wonder how many of those other writers have their own Netflix series now. That's a good point. <laughs> um, 
Oh, Hyman, you know, I have trouble giving him credit for anything because of the tumultuous relationship that he had with Shirley, which I will probably end up talking about sooner or later. Uh, but he did predict that Jackson's, and I'm going to use his language, quote, powerful visions of suffering and inhumanity would be found increasingly significant and meaningful. I'm sure he would have cited the Netflix series had he known <laughs> that was a thing to come. Um, he truly always understood that her long form or serious work was more than pop fiction or gory horror. And yet that was not the majority view of her at, in her lifetime. Well, and part of that is somewhat understandable. Um, one thing I didn't know about in, until we started reading up on her for this series was that her uh, acclaim during her day really came from two places. One was for the short story, The Lottery. That's the, how I knew about her. Yeah. But the other, and, and this is what I didn't know, was her best-selling essay collection on domestic life titled Life Among the Savages. Um, I read little of that also, but uh, what I did read is really, truly funny stuff. And she was Irma Bombeck before <laughs> Irma Bombeck was Irma Bombeck. <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. For those of you who don't know who Irma Bombeck is, who is that, Gary? Oh, she was a hilarious writer of the of that generation who told stories about the, the crazy events of her family life, raising children and things like that. Well, and that's exactly what Shirley Jackson did. And she was funny and she was writing about her kids and house cleaning and being a mom and a member of a local community and really the craziness of this emerging middle class life. It was the stuff that people were living in their world. And that's why it was funny. And people didn't take seriously the psychological insights about emotional isolation rage paranoia fragmentation of the human mind <laughs> that's not funny not well not if you're a regular contributor to good housekeeping mademoiselle mccall's and the ladies home journal <laughs> i'm sure they would not take kindly to articles like that well no it was just too different in it. And, of course, you can't discount the condescension from the serious art community. Oh, I put serious not. art community in air quotes, okay? <laughs> I mean, uh, here was a woman writing in a genre that nobody took seriously about female protagonists, which was often not taken seriously and was f famous for cute anecdotes about the comedy of errors, which is life as a house mom raising four children in a small town. And we also must remember, as a general rule, the 1950s are not that far removed from the time period where women didn't read much literature at all. There was a thing called ladies reading material. <laughs> That's what women oh, read okay. largely. Uh, men read literature, but women writing for women was not elevated enough to actually be called literature. <laughs> it was simply reading, reading material, material for women. Okay. Well, I guess we shall make that distinction, although I will say, as a woman writing a lady's reading material for money, uh, she did pretty well at that. Um, Shirley Jackson made some serious cash off of these stories that she was sending to these magazines. In fact, she out-earned her husband. It was the essays to these magazines that was funding their lifestyle, not her novels. Her biographer, Ruth Franklin, commented in an interview that she could make over $2,000 per essay. And at that time, you could buy a car for that. And she did. <laughs> she had a Morris Minor collection. Well, nice. <laughs> well, British sports cars are always a fun thing to keep around the house. I guess. <laughs> but back to her legacy for a second. 
Jackson is like Elizabeth Barrett Browning in that her work well after her death found its way into the canon and today is very much taken seriously. In fact, we're teaching her right now to all the 11th graders here in Memphis, Tennessee at Bartlett High School. And I don't know any American student who hasn't read the lottery at some point uh, during their education, although that short story triggered more public outrage in 1948 than anything published before or since in that magazine, The New Yorker. I mean, hundreds of people canceled their subscriptions and even more wrote the magazine totally (laughs) exasperated. Well, it's political and psychological and really even religious as well. But uh, back to the 11th graders of Bartlett, do you think your kids will be able to appreciate or enjoy the depth of the psychological analysis in her novel uh, that really is the hallmark of her work today? Well, you know, I think many of them will get it. And I do look forward to how they understand what she's talking about You know, students today live in a very different world, and the ghosts and houses that haunt them look very differently than the ghosts and houses that haunted my generation or much less Shirley Jackson's. And I look forward to hearing them talk about the issues that haunt them and seeing what part of this book resonates and fascinates them the most. One of the things that fascinates me the most, and I'm expecting to come out, is Jackson's multiple direct and indirect references to the relationship between mothers and daughters. It's clear in this book that whatever is going wrong in Eleanor's mind has something to do with her dead mother. I have two daughters, and I really pray that I'm not the kind of mother Shirley Jackson had or that my daughters ever express any of the feelings she expresses about mother-daughter relationships Nothing that would haunt or torment my children after I'm dead. <laughs> well, no, I'm sure none of us want to have that kind of legacy with our children. And yet, there are women like Geraldine Jackson, Shirley's mother. Geraldine was truly relentless in her cruelty towards her daughter. She was cruel to her as a child, and her passive-aggressive disapproval was something that she perpetuated all throughout Shirley's life, right into she died at the young age of 48. Yes, and um, I think understanding Geraldine's cruelty really helps me see some of the things in Jackson's writing that I may have overlooked before. And I know that an author's life cannot be used uncritically to explain an artist's work because, you know, obviously art speaks for itself. But maybe more than any other writer we've read together, Jackson is using her writing to express pain in artistic ways that were very personal to her and universal to many of us. And uh, Geraldine's ruthless, subtle, uh, and sometimes not so subtle demoralizing was something that Jackson could not get out of her mind. Geraldine's own personality disorder took a heavy toll on Shirley. And yet it was always expressed with all the best of intentions. She was so concerned, as always. Those, as those types of things are done. So uh, let's tell a little bit about their story, and then uh, people will know what you're talking about. Okay, well, the story starts when Jackson was born in 1916, although, funny enough, she lied about her age and would claim to have been born in 1919. Imagine someone lying about their age. (laughs) But anyway, uh, she was born into this affluent family, and up until she was 16, they lived in this town called Burlingame, California. 
Well, um, I would just like to say that October is Christy's birthday month, and so <laughs> we're used to lying about age, right? Oh, yeah, every year. Right. So let me tell you this. Just for context, Burlingame uh, to this day is one of the most expensive cities in the United States, and the medium household cost in Burlingame is around over $2 million, and uh, I'm not talking mansions. I mean, this is the price range for what would be an average home that would cost a tenth of that in other parts of the country. And every review on uh, bestplaces.com talks about how unaffordable it is for most people to live in Burlingame. Well, Geraldine, Shirley's mom, and her father, Leslie, cultivated there that cliched vision of upper country club lifestyle, the that I kind of think of as this cliched Californian cartoon. I mean, they were the production of this very sophisticated appearance of success and wealth. And what was important was the appearance of things. They were into competitive living, and that, of course, must include having perfect children. Shirley's brother could compete. He was beautiful and competitive and made them proud. But unfortunately, Shirley was not. She was just a huge disappointment for Geraldine. She could not, and she didn't want to fit the mold. First of all, Shirley was heavier than the other girls, but she didn't enjoy the same kind of things as the other girls. She didn't like that debutante kind of thing, and she didn't have that all-American Barbie doll look like the other girls had. Uh, She just wasn't cute enough in a lot of ways. Yes, I read a couple of articles that uh, called Jackson morbidly obese. And so I Googled some images of her, and it was true that she was heavy. But in my mind, she falls way short of the criteria for morbidly obese by today's definition. I thought that, too. Especially in her youth. Uh, And I want to say something else about this 1950s lifestyle we've been discussing. You know, after World War II... There was a huge economic boom that really doubled family incomes in that decade. If you can imagine your monthly income going up 100%. uh, I can imagine that. (laughs) Well, well, it was the first decade of widespread middle-class wealth. And one sign of that new middle-class wealth was this ability to live on one income. Wives staying at home were a sign of wealth and prestige. Well, and that's, of course, what the Jacksons were after. Uh, but, you know, Shirley did not fit what Geraldine wanted. She wasn't the daughter that she could be proud of strutting across, you know, whatever those deputy ball places are. Uh, truth be told, Geraldine was actually even disappointed when she found out she was pregnant because she didn't even want a child when she got pregnant. But Geraldine's largest problem and obsession, where you see it the most, at least in the letters, was Shirley's weight. And she kept commenting about it and obsessing about it for the rest of her life, all the time. The comments were gratuitous. She just always liked to remind her that she was fat. Here's some quotes from a couple of Geraldine's letters to her daughter, so you can see what I'm talking about. She would just slip in these lines like, I'm glad you're dieting. Here's another one. Excess weight is hard on the heart. You should get down to a normal weight. Try non-fat milk. I mean, even after the publication of what would be Jackson's final novel, I mean, final novel, Geraldine could be relied on to bring up Jackson's weight. Why, oh why, do you allow the magazines to print such awful pictures of you? I've been so sad all morning about what have you allowed yourself to look like. (laughs) Wow. 
Well, let me read this full quote for context. Um, If you don't care what you look like or care about your appearance, why don't you do something about it for your children's sake and your husband's? I have been so sad all morning about what you have allowed yourself to look like. You were, and I guess still are, a very willful child and one who insisted on our own way in everything, good or bad. You know what? This is a straight-up narcissistic rant. Well, there was always the subtext that no matter what Shirley did with her life, she could never live up to her mother's expectations, even if she was famous Jackson wanted acceptance of who she was, and she wanted it on her own terms. She wanted to try to prove to her mom that the way she was was a good way, and that the life that she was living, was she was good at it, just being herself. But that was never going to happen. In fact, at one low moment, I mean, to me, this is the worst. Geraldine actually told Shirley that she was a failed abortion. Ah, that is just hateful beyond description. I mean, Geraldine wanted a a girl in the image of what she wanted, and she was never going to compromise. And uh, this is classically what people call today a toxic mother. And this takes a terrible toll on girls who have toxic mothers. And these behaviors can destroy women's images of themselves. Uh, And this is what seems to have happened with Jackson, her mother. Let me just back up and say um, it's really absolutely natural and healthy for a girl to look up to her mother. Uh, A mom is the original idea of what a woman should be to a young girl, and that's how we all learn to navigate in this world. And likely a mom and a daughter will have a lot in common for obvious reasons, and there's a lot of joy in that, and there's a special bond in that. But uh, over the years, as a little girl develops you know, really into a teenager, uh, at first she wants to be exactly like her mom. That desire separates out, and in a normal relationship, a young girl is going to transition into being a woman, and she individuates. She wants to be her own separate identity, and she becomes her own person. Some things of her mother she will keep, other things she'll discard. And the point of all this is that healthy moms respect and encourage daughters' individuality, and a normal mom will do whatever she can to equip her daughter to, you know, make her bolder and stronger. But as uh, painful as it may be from a mom's perspective, healthy moms accept daughter's choices, even the ones that they think really are mistakes. And it's just what they do. And if they end up being mistakes, it's okay. So we all get to live our own lives. However, in Geraldine's life, what Shirley did was always a reflection on her. So she couldn't let the fact go that her daughter was overweight or not living up to her standards well how do you think she took it when shirley told her mom she was going to marry a jew in 1940 or should i say she actually told her that she had already married a jew she didn't tell her parents until several months because she knew they were anti-semites and she knew it just wasn't going to go well I'm going to say it probably didn't, but I really don't know. Uh, I do want to say one other thing, uh, though, Christy, so don't get me wrong. I think it's pretty well established that motherhood is, by definition, a lose-lose proposition. (laughs) Moms just can't win. Oh, dear. It's impossible to raise a perfect child, just like it's impossible to be a perfect person. So, of course, we can't raise a person in the most perfect of emotional environments. And um, moms will unrealistically be blamed for things that may or not be their fault. The reality is no one can be perfect. We'll hurt each other. There will be insecurities that spring up. 
because of the way we're raised. And, you know, that's kind of normal, too. And it's normal for dads. It's normal for moms. But that is not the same as being a toxic mom. Geraldine was aggressively toxic. Nothing was ever going to be good enough for Geraldine. She was perpetually disapproving and surely was never going to meet those standards. And if she did meet them, the mother would have changed them so she couldn't meet them again. So Geraldine was uh, always very controlling. And I read somewhere that she made Shirley wear garters and high heels as a little girl. <laughs> she was constantly guilt tripping Shirley. She constantly made negative comments. She manipulated Shirley's emotions. And most of the time she did it very nicely in a passive aggressive way and she did it under the guise of love and that seems to be in one sense what jackson expresses in her writing it's at least what lots of people have identified in hill house there is this sense that shirley could never get her mom out of her head and of course she's not the only one who struggles with these kinds of things in hill house the main character is a 32 year old young woman named eleanor vance and i want to add that 32 is in a young age she's not a child uh, she's not telling a story about a child and the abuses of a mom on a small child. Eleanor is a fully grown adult who should be living her own independent life and should have been doing this for quite some time, but she hasn't. She hasn't even had the opportunity to leave. Eleanor has no friends. She's alone, and that's what we're told at the beginning of the story, and we're going to see that all the way through the end when she tells Thero that she's never been wanted. It's how she's always felt. We're also told Eleanor's mother is dead right here at the beginning. And Eleanor had been taking care of her relentlessly since she was 20 years old. Eleanor's mom is a constant presence in Eleanor's psyche, even beyond the grave. Eleanor even buys clothes on purpose that she knows her mom will hate. Pants. Just because her mom is dead and can't do anything about it. Eleanor is haunted way before she ever gets to Hill House. True. And this lack of self-esteem and loneliness is what has resonated with so many women and men who have read Jackson's stories. And it also is what directly led to a lot of the suffering Jackson experienced in her marriage to Stanley. Stanley Hyman. Oh, there's a character. Before I smear him, <laughs> which I will, I guess I'll say right off the bat that he in many ways was supportive of Shirley professionally, and he admired her intellectually. My problem with Stanley is that he degraded her sexually, and that's the cruelest and most intimate and demeaning forms of, you know, degrad degradation, I guess, that there is. For one thing, he absolutely did not respect the sexual boundaries Shirley wanted in their marriage and was fair to want. Besides having so many affairs with students at the school where he taught but really just anyone he seemed to enjoy telling Shirley about all these trysts I mean I've read a few of the letters that he wrote about women he was sleeping with on these various business trips and I got the feeling it's almost like he was bragging a little bit I'd read a few quotes but they're vulgar I mean he talked about groping girls and he would give details about what he had done it's gross never mind hurtful and Shirley would get upset. Although she was a free spirit and bohemian in some ways, this was not okay with her. And she didn't want an open marriage where everyone just slept with whoever they wanted. And there were letters that she wrote to him and she would express how this behavior made her feel. But she never mailed those letters. 
I don't even know why. Maybe she didn't have the nerve. Maybe she knew it wouldn't make a difference. Maybe she wanted her family and that was the price she was willing to pay. I'm just speculating. We only know that she just took it. She never confronted him. At least there's no record of that. And she just forced herself to accept it and move on with her life. Man, this story just goes from bad (laughs) to worse. And uh, what you describe right there, that's an indication of low self-esteem, obviously. Jackson wouldn't have put up with that sort of thing like she did if she didn't think at some level really it was her fault or responsibility or that she didn't deserve to be treated any better than that. And that is the legacy of a toxic parent. You know, allowing people to treat you in a way that is less and that that's not how you treat them is a direct result of low self-esteem. But I want to add that uh, future abusive relationships is not the only symptom of low self-esteem. And it isn't the only symptom of low self-esteem that we see in Jackson's life and behaviors that provoke self-harm like overeating, over drinking, pill popping, you know, all things that Jackson did. Uh, are also a result of the low self-esteem, and they indicate high levels of anxiety and uh, feelings of sadness and depression, anxiety and anger and shame and guilt uh, are also things that we see in Jax's life, and she seems to have truly struggled emotionally, and I think we're getting to a point where we can understand that she can write a horror novel. (laughs) Well, true, but before we get too dark, Shirley was all of that, but she wasn't only that. She had a happy side, too, and apparently a tremendously happy side. I say that from interviews that I read with people who interviewed her children. What her kids write about and talk about their home life, the reports are glowing. I mean, her home was a truly happy place. It was chaotic and topsy-turvy, the kind of crazy that people love. And they didn't even see tension between their parents. For one thing, Stanley, you know, being that 1950s stereotype kind of father, didn't really have much to do uh, with the family. That wasn't common. The home was the mother's domain. But from the perspective of her children, Shirley's marriage to Stanley was happy and their home was happy. And we all see that part going on. Back to her biographer, Ruth Franklin. Franklin deliberately titled her biography about Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, Hmm. kind of to reflect that idea it was haunted not entirely haunted just rather haunted (laughs) yes and it was that dichotomy that leads to all kinds of cognitive dissonance i mean i read in another article by a different biographer that Shirley, uh, as a mother was deeply involved but also really emotionally erratic and her moods and anxieties colored her children's days and no one could be more loving but also no one could be meaner Which brings me back to her as a writer. One critic observed that out of over 110 different stories that Jackson wrote in her lifetime, most of them are about imperiled, divided, or anxious women. That's counting both her scary and her funny stories. And when we get to her final three novels, they are gothic, completely about anxiety, entrapment, and in the case of Hill House, a deeply troubled female with an inability to differentiate between illusion and reality. Understanding that makes the famous first paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House meaningful in a deeper way, at least it does for me. And I do want to emphasize this first paragraph that we're about to read is one of the most famous paragraphs in all of Jackson's writings. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality, Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. 
Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright. Bricks met neatly. Floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. All right. And what do you always say when we start these books, that great writers will give their story away in the first sentence or two? Well, they almost always do. This one in particular invites us to think about so much. First of all, it starts with a negation. No. But there are a lot of negative words. It's hard to understand, but something is telling us no. And when we get to the end of the book, that prophecy is fulfilled, although I won't spoil it (laughs) just yet and tell you how. But there's so much more. Listen to the ideas she introduces. There is the idea of being alive, of being sane or not sane. There's your negative word again. Of standing in the darkness, in the silence, of being alone, of being in a house, but yet being alone. The alliteration highlights and brings together all of her key ideas within walls, drawing attention to this idea of claustrophobia, sensibly stuck. sensibly shut silence lays steadily i might add brings the silence and the claustrophobia together then of course whatever walked walked alone that w sound swishes in her head and haunts to the end of the sentence (laughs) wow she worked in all of her personal demons in one sentence yes and all of her Personal demons getting ready to flesh themselves out metaphorically for all of us to understand and experience with her. So this assertion that she makes about absolute reality, um, of course, is a religious or a philosophical statement. And this idea that we absolutely just cannot know what is real. And if we did know what is real, we would go crazy. I mean, she's going to say that even little birds and crickets are Katie did as a cricket, if you hadn't heard that word yet, it's not very common. Uh, Not even the simplest organisms can handle a world without illusions. We need then to protect our own sanity, is what she's saying. Yes, and that's a paradox. But the subtext here suggests because reality is dark, and the reality is you're alone in this world. You can live, but perhaps you must accept a dream, perhaps an illusion that people have your back, people love you, will support you. But in reality, in Jackson reality, you're alone. Perhaps you have to even create an entire fairyland, something to give you an escape from what you know to be true, the betrayal that's coming. I'm speculating, obviously, because I'm fleshing out what's implied with the subtext, at least what's implied to me. But there is a sense that that is the direction she's leading us. And it certainly seems to be something that we see in her own personal story. Well, it's also kind of a religious statement because it speaks really to the nature of reality. And that is the essence of faith and walking through life, not alone. And uh, Christy, what was her religious background? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, she was raised by members of the Christian Science Church, but later on she developed a real fascination with the occult and was even accused of being a witch, which, if you can believe that. But Gary, what makes Christian scientists different? Because they're not exactly the same as other mainstream versions of Christianity. Well, Christian scientists, uh, for those who are not familiar with Christianity, they adopt many of the tenets of traditional Christianity, but they break from it on a couple of ways that are pretty obvious. And 
for one, they do not accept the deity of Christ in the way traditional versions of Christianity do. But the second is what most people know, and that is the tension between the teachings of the Christian Science Church and their complicated relationship with the medical community. They encourage their members to pray for divine healings, um, often perhaps instead of going to see doctors and getting medical help. And that's been controversial in some cases, especially for family members outside the faith. And that was true for Jackson. Um, One time she tells the story where she and her brother were horsing around and her brother broke his arm. And instead of going to the doctor, Geraldine and her mother stayed up all night and prayed for his broken arm. Her grandmother was a faith healer in the church and Jackson did not approve of this. So she had the side of her that would be very secular. But then Jackson had a side of her that was spiritual in her own sense. I mean, she carried around tarot cards and she tried to communicate with spirits later on in her life. And she flirted really with all kinds of spiritual practices. Like I said before, many people did accuse her of practicing witchcraft, although I never found that she did anything serious. (laughs) She used it kind of as a gimmick to sell books, maybe. I don't know. Well, so I could see why she might say something about absolute reality being somewhat a noble or, or even a dark and lonely thing. True, and at least in this book, what we see in the relationships that populate the lives of the characters is that they're contrived. In chapter one of The Haunting of Hill House, Dr. Montague, a title that is somewhat meant to mislead since he's really a ghost hunter, assembles a very select group of people to live with him for three months in a house that he thinks is probably haunted. There are only four people that will be in this house, Dr. Montague himself, Luke, who's a member of the family that owned the house, Theodora, who is selected because she has some sort of extrasensory perception abilities, and Eleanor, who had this poltergeist experience as a child where she seemed to bring down a shower of rocks. We will follow what happens to them from the point of view of Eleanor, sort of. This story is written in the third-person omniscient style, but it's really more akin to that free indirect discourse that we saw Jane Austen create in Emma. Laura Miller, in the introduction to the book, put it this way. She says, readers, quote, experience the novel from within Eleanor's consciousness, and however unreliable we know her to be, we are wedded to her. And of course, the farther you go into the novel the more you understand that that's a true statement. Most of the first chapter is kind of a way to introduce us to Eleanor and what we find out about her, besides that she's uh, 32 and generally has a good reason to hate her mother, is that she also generally hates her sister. Let's read that first little part. (laughs) Eleanor Vance was 32 years old when she came to Hill House. The only person in the world she genuinely hated now that her mother was dead was her sister. She disliked her brother-in-law and her five-year-old niece, and she had no friends. This was owing largely to the 11 years she had spent caring for her invalid mother, which had left her with some proficiency as a nurse and an inability to face strong sunlight without blinking. She could not remember ever being truly happy in her adult life, Her years with her mother had been built up devotedly around small guilts and small reproaches, constant weariness, and unending despair. Without ever wanting to become reserved and shy, she had spent so long alone with no one to love that it was difficult for her to talk, even casually, to another person without self-consciousness and an awkward inability to find words. Well, 
she's clearly alone and exploited by people who are supposed to protect her. I mean, this is uh, further developed through the anecdote about her sister in their car. Uh, apparently, they bought a car together, but her sister never lets her drive it. So when Dr. Montague invites her to come to the Hill House, she just takes the car and goes. <laughs> Good for her. Yes. And while she's driving to Hill House, um, she imagines all sorts of things. She imagines things that could never be real, like the road being an intimate friend or living in a house with a pair of stone lions and people bowing to her on the street because of these lions. I mean... It begins to give you this uh, kind of crazy feeling, like how you would feel if you had finally escaped. Well, that crazy feeling is going to intensify as the book progresses. Wait till you get to chapter four and then five. She's escaped her mother only to land sleeping on a cot in the nursery of a terrible sister. She's now escaped her sister, but look where she's going. At one point on her drive to Hill House, she stops to admire a quarter of a mile of oleanders. Now, I didn't know what an oleander was, so I, 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 I looked it up. And it's a beautiful flower. I looked at the pictures, but they're also poisonous. But Eleanor, she fantasizes about them, about a castle with oleanders. And then she gets back in her car and drives to a diner where she's going to watch a mom coax her daughter into drinking a cup of milk and... Let me tell you, these same images that we see actually happening on this drive to Hill House show up again. And we, as readers, understand that we're losing our grasp of reality here. But here in Chapter 1, when she finally gets to the mansion, the caretaker, Mr. Dudley, flat out tells her, You won't like it. You'll be sorry I ever opened that gate. She looks at him and asks him to get away from her car, and then she proceeds forward. At the end of the chapter, we see her looking at this house, and this is what she says. The house was vile. She shivered and thought, the words coming freely into her mind. Hill House is vile. It is diseased. Get away from here at once. But of course, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. That's the thing about haunted houses. They're dangerously tantalizing. She was invited here by Mr. Montague, and for better or for worse, she wants to be here. I don't know if The Haunting of Hill House is the best example of this, but Jackson was absolutely fascinated by this thing uh, Edgar Allan Poe called The Imp of the Perverse. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Oh, yes, the urge to do something awful to someone and have pleasure in it. I mean, I've seen this in kids. A kid just trips another child in the hall just because he can, and... Uh, Paul Sikovsky's, uh, a psychology professor, suggests that it's evolutionary to have these kinds of intrusive thoughts as part of our way of problem solving for future problems. But this idea that um, people have impulses to do mean things, or at least things we know we shouldn't do, and get joy from them, uh, Jackson was very interested in that idea. So, are you saying that Dr. Montague is deliberately doing something mean, or that Dudley is, or Eleanor is? No, not really. I mean, in other stories, she demonstrates that idea way more poignantly. But the reason it comes to mind, besides the fact that somebody told me to look for it in her writing, is that we're setting up relationships where we really can't trust each other to be there. Where one character can't trust the other character to be there for him or her. Hill House looks like a place where you're really going to feel alone and exposed. And that's where the terror comes But we will also see that it's soft, it's comfortable, it's motherly. People are well-fed. And 
the people who arrive here at the beginning are all excited. It's seductive. Huh. Let me just add one thing I didn't know until we started studying this book. Um, HorrorNovelReviews.com claims that Haunting of Hill House is the eighth scariest novel of all time. And Paste Magazine puts it in the unsorted top 30. And so we open the gates to this terrifying place, Hill House. Next episode, we will look at the house itself. We'll look at the places where biographers think she got her inspiration for the house. We'll meet the other residents, explore the history of the house, and begin to experience the ghosts, if that indeed is what they Mm. are, as they manifest themselves to us the eyes of Eleanor. <laughs> okay, look forward to it. Well, thanks for being with us today as we introduce this great work by Shirley Jackson. As always, we ask you to text an episode to a friend. Tell other people about us. That's the way we grow. Follow us on our social media. Also, check us out at howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have all kinds of things available for teachers so they can use podcasts in the classroom. Thanks again for being with us. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.